They say pedestrians have the right of way. But what's right anyway? Wandering down the walkway of life, rules on the road seem optional today. No shortage of decision to make. Turn left, turn right, speak up, stay quiet. Hold up, wait. But the choice is mine. Money, power, respect, gonna get what I want. No stop sign. Some have a well-crafted out plan, all mapped out. Coordinates locked into the GPS, just a straight shot. Some like the free flow, you know, live carefree until life pulls out in front. No sick, without warning, from the blind spots. We're left stumped, we're left confused. This is concerning. What is this? Do you even see me? Before there's a where, what, or when, we must start in a place to begin. Who are you? I'm so glad to be here with you this weekend. Leading up to this moment, I have been claiming Psalm 139, verse 16, over all of us. It says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Simply put, you're supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. God, in his sovereign way, has brought us here. And I believe that he has something that he wants to show us about himself and about who we are. So let me take you back in time with me. <laughs> I was 16. Oh, did you want to see a picture of when I was 16? <laughs> Here I am. I was 16, and I could not have been more excited to be working at Nelson's County Market as a cashier. Now, you need to understand that I breezed through the initial position as bagger of groceries. And at this point, I was counting my own drawer, and I was pulling PLU numbers out of the air for squash and Brussels sprouts, as long as I could actually identify the vegetable. <laughs> I was in the zone. And that was the case the day that I was taking my break and I was chatting with an employee from the produce department. And in the middle of our conversation, he said to me, how are you so happy all the time? For those of you who don't know me well, God has made me to run with quite a high level of energy and joy and enthusiasm. I often scare people or overwhelm them when I just feel like I'm being normal. <laughs> and such was the case that day at Nelson's County Market. As I quickly tried to formulate an answer in my head, a battle took place inside of me because I knew why I was so happy all the time. I had a saving relationship with Jesus and that gave me hope and joy in all circumstances. And as a bonus, when God crafted me, he infused me with what this guy saw as happiness but truly is joy. But quoting Psalm 137 in that moment seemed a little scary. Can you imagine? Well, didn't you know, Chris, that God crafted me in my mother's womb to be fearfully and wonderfully made? <laughs> so instead, I just blurted out, I drink a lot of caffeine. That's why I'm so happy all the time. <laughs> as I look back now, I see that moment as an opportunity to have shared my faith. 
It was an open door to share about the hope that I had then and still have now. And I didn't take it. I had not readied myself. And according to the Apostle Paul, that was my main problem. For the last three weeks, Pastor Kyle has been walking us through the first two chapters of the New Testament book of First Peter. And through this letter written by the Apostle Peter, we've learned the importance of these three truths. Believe who you are, become who you are, and express who you are. If you missed any of those sermons, I encourage you to go to wooddale.org and catch up. It'll definitely be worth your time. When we know who we are, it changes everything, including our desire and our comfort level in sharing our faith in Jesus Christ with others. And even as I say that, I can sense that some of you are getting nervous. And I want you to know that that's okay. It's actually very, very normal, but I just want you to hang in there with me. Peter encourages and instructs believers in how they should behave toward one another and to the world that they were living in, which was hostile toward them at the time. And this is definitely true of the section that we're going to take a deep dive into this weekend, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 16. So grab your Bibles or your devices and make your way there to 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. The Apostle Peter writes, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, it's really easy to rattle off these words, like-minded, sympathetic, compassionate, humble. But when I think of how hard it is to make these words a reality in the Christian church, it causes me to pause. If you've grown up in the Christian church, you've probably experienced the opposite of the picture that Peter is trying to paint here. So you saw fights about what kind of worship music was actually worship. You saw people get angry when they came up to their seat in a pew and someone else had taken it. Gossip was shared as a prayer request and people were much more quick to judge than they were to encourage. And all of those actions cause disharmony. And as Christians, we should be known for our love and our kindness and our compassion in how we relate to each other and the world around us. We shouldn't be known for our fighting and quarreling and being agitated about something all the time. <laughs> That's not attractive, especially to those that we are trying to reach. It's interesting to think about the fact that Peter had to learn these qualities that he lays out for believers in his letter. Sympathy, love, compassion, humility, those did not come naturally for Peter. When he first started his ministry with Jesus, his compulsive and strong-willed personality rubbed people the wrong way. But the Holy Spirit 
did a work in Peter and he changed. And that Holy Spirit can do the same for you and me, especially in the way that we're willing to share our faith stories. So look at what Peter has to say about this in verses 15 through 16. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Up until this point, Peter had worked really hard to help people understand how to express themselves. And now he's leaning into how they should explain themselves when someone asks about their faith in Jesus. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer. I know that as a 16-year-old girl building up my resume at Nelson's County Market, I had not prepared myself for the question, and I certainly hadn't been thoughtful in my answer. I mean, I believe that Jesus died for me and that he gives me life here on earth and life everlasting. I had thought about the way that God had shaped my life and I was so grateful for it. I just hadn't given my faith story the attention it deserved. So what would that look like? What would it look like if we gave our stories the attention they deserve? Let's start first with the answer and then come back to the idea of being prepared because how can you be prepared to share a story that you don't know? I'm convinced that the answer that Peter is asking us to give comes in two complementary parts. The big answer and the personal answer. Now first is the big answer. It's the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. And during the night of Jesus' crucifixion, Peter's only answer when asked about Jesus was, I don't know the man. But when we turn our attention to a later account of Peter, we see him shouting above a crowd, not just that he knows the man, but that that man Jesus is the Messiah. We find this whole account in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. And we don't have the time to dissect it this weekend, but I really encourage you to write the reference down and do some study on your own because it's fascinating. Let me summarize it for you. Weeks after Jesus had left the disciples to do all he commanded them to do, they found a man to replace Judas. And so there were 12 again, and they gathered together to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, we see something crazy that happened. Look at this in verses 2 through 4. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
People from all over Jerusalem heard and sensed the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. They were amazed and they came running and they couldn't figure it out. No matter what their native language was, they were hearing the disciples speak in their tongue. This passage said that there were at least 15 languages that were being spoken. And the people were amazed. They said, how can this be? Aren't all these men from Galilee? What does this mean? Now, most were amazed, but some of them thought the disciples were just drunk. (laughs) And in the midst of all of that crazy, Peter steps up and he gives an answer to their questions. And here's what he says. Then Peter stood up with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. (laughs) I love when the Bible inserts humor. But Peter had been working with these people, but boy, the Holy Spirit had been working in Peter. And he breathed courage and tenacity and boldness and truth into this loose cannon disciple. I mean, this is an example of sanctification, like Pastor Kyle talked about three weeks ago. It's the process of God molding and shaping us to look more like Jesus. And this is a process, sanctification, that happens over our whole faith journey. But every once in a while, there are sanctification surges like the one in Peter's life. And as Peter answered the crowd's questions, he pulled from a minor prophet, Joel, and a psalm of David. And he quoted both of those. Both of them are passages that the crowd would have known and held in high regard, and both of those passages predicted Jesus as the Messiah. Now, side note here. Peter wasn't holding a Bible as we know it as he gave his answer. In this setting, he would not have unrolled a scroll. Every word that he quoted from Scripture was from memory. If you have a Bible in front of you, look at all of the indented quotes. That was all from memory. Now, sure, you could say that oral tradition was the way of the culture then. So insights were passed along verbally from generation to generation. So people were just naturally better listeners and they retained more. But I believe the truth is this is strong proof that knowing God's word and putting it to memory is a vital part of being ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus. Other scriptures affirm this as well. One of them comes from Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. It says, keep this book of the law, that's what they would have considered the Bible during the time, keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives an answer to the hope that he has. And his answer is multi-layered, but it helps to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, just as predicted. It was proven through his miracles. It was proven through his death through his resurrection, 
and through his exaltation and the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, I know that that's pretty heavy, so let me tell you how Andy Stanley simplifies Peter's message. Andy is a preacher and an author from down in the South, and he's just incredible. He says that the summary of Peter's message that day was this. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. <laughs> and according to Acts 2:41, about 3,000 people that day said they were sorry. The fancy way to say it is they repented and were baptized because of what they saw in Peter's answer. And what Peter communicated that day was the big answer. It's the foundation of our faith and why we're able to be in a relationship with God. And Peter fashioned his answer that day according to the moment and the crowd he was talking to. For us, it would sound more like this. As humans, we are bent toward going our own way instead of God's way. And that's called sin, and it separates us from God. But God, in his love, made a way for us to come back to him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to ask a bold question. If you were asked, could you explain the big answer to someone? One of the beautiful combinations of God's qualities is that he is both powerful and personal. So he's powerful enough to beat sin and raise Jesus from the dead, but he's personal enough to have the big answer shape our personal story. You have a personal story of the hope that you have in Jesus, and it's unique to you. Have you ever thought through that answer? Have you ever made a connection from God's power into your personal life? To help you make that personal connection, let me share a few examples of what I have heard others say about their personal answer. I've heard people say, God's gift of forgiveness through Jesus is free. And I'm so thankful for that gift because I'm a doer. I'm an activator. I often struggle with trying to earn God's love through what I do. But then he gently reminds me that his love for me is based on him and not what I do or don't do. That's a personal answer. Somebody else said, my dad was not around physically or emotionally when I was growing up. But God has redeemed the title of father in my life. He has been the steady, strong, and loving father that I needed and wanted. Someone else said, I, I'm a little weird. I'm a little out there. I've never seemed to fit any mold that others want me to fit in. But I have great confidence knowing that God made me on purpose and with purpose. And all that I have to do is to be who he fashioned me to be and then let him take care of the rest. Another personal answer includes, I've struggled with an addictive personality for as long as I can remember. So many times I've tried to beat an addiction myself, to muscle through, but it never works. It's only when I have given my addiction 
over to the power of the spirit within me that I have victory. Or someone said, I'm 51 and I'm single. It's not at all how I imagined it growing up. I often wrestle with loneliness, feeling inadequate and unwanted. But I know that I'm created in the image of God, that he loved me and sent his son Jesus to die for me. I am whole and complete, lacking nothing, and that is all the love I need. Honestly, friends, God has been working in and around and through your life, whether you've noticed it, whether you've acknowledged it, whether or not you even wanted it, he was working and he's still working. And that's all part of your personal answer if you have said yes to Jesus. Once you start reflecting on your personal story and matching it with the truth of God, your answer will nearly write itself. I mean, not literally write itself. You're going to have to put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard, or voice to text. But I encourage you to do that, to take the time and write out your personal answer. I have a few versions of my personal answer. I have one that can be told over a long lunch period. I have one that could be done as I'm switching sides on the tennis court. I even have one that's fashioned for the attention span of a teenager. You want to guess how long that one is? <laughs> but in my 47 years of living, I have found that people will sometimes argue with the big answer. They'll argue with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But they can't argue with your personal answer. Because that is yours. That is real. It is how God has impacted your life. Now, once you've claimed and can articulate the big and personal answers, then you're ready you're prepared almost for what Peter commands us to do. And I say almost because part of the preparation is looking for and responding to being asked. And sometimes people will ask you directly, but sometimes the ask comes from a nudge of the Spirit. Have you ever been in a situation where you just sensed that you were supposed to share your faith? Maybe it was with a person that was sitting next to you on the airplane or a friend was sharing about the hard time they were going through or you noticed someone sitting on a bench across the playground. I know I have felt those nudges before and I believe they are from the Lord. Steve is a faithful Wooddaler and a volunteer here and he felt as such a nudge from the Lord and he wrote out his story and gave us permission to use it. Listen to what Steve says. A number of years ago, I was appraising a home for a man by the name of Bob. As we went through Bob's house, he showed me the garage, which had imported ceramic tile from Italy. In one corner was parked a brand new Corvette, in another corner was a Lamborghini, and in another corner was a Ferrari. One of Bob's favorite pastimes was to park a car downtown on the square and then stand off about 50 feet and watch as people stopped to admire his car. 
As we went through the house, Bob continued to show me all of his toys. The more Bob talked, the more I could sense a real emptiness in his life. And the more I felt the Lord compelling me to share the gospel with Bob. By the time I finished my inspection, I could now imagine how Paul felt when he was pressed in the spirit to share the gospel. However, there was one problem. I was already late for my next appointment. As I was leaving, I stopped at the end of the driveway, again feeling compelled that I should go back and talk to Bob. Looking at my watch one more time, I realized that the people at the next appointment were waiting for me, so I drove off. When I arrived at the next appointment, there was a note on the door. The homeowner had to leave that morning for an emergency. Front door is open, lock it on the way out. They were never waiting for me. Two days later, I read in the paper that Bob had committed suicide. Wow, that hits you, doesn't it? I know that sharing our faith can make us nervous and that we are full of seemingly reasonable excuses. Have you ever thought to yourself, what if I don't know what to say? Or what if he asks me a question that I don't know the answer to? I'm not really that outgoing. <laughs> How can I share about someone else's life when my life is such a mess? What if she freaks out and won't talk to me again? I don't communicate well. There's not enough time. Those are all valid concerns. But listen to what Steve said. What I learned is number one, we need to be ready to share the gospel. And number two, when you feel compelled or prompted in the spirit to share, just do it. Leave the results to God. Steve said, how could I live with myself after this mess up? I told God that I recognized what a fool I was and that if he never gave me the opportunity to share again, I would totally understand. Two days later, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with another person and he accepted Christ. And his name was also Bob. God is good even when we mess up. At the end of the challenge in 1 Peter, the apostle, knowing how many Christians can be, adds this disclaimer. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We are not out to win a fight. It is not your responsibility to convert someone to the Christian faith. That's actually God's responsibility. It's his job, and he's really, really good at it. Our only job is to be ready with an answer when we're asked or when we're prompted for the reason that we believe. One way that you can show gentleness and respect when sharing your faith with someone else is to get to know their own personal story. I once heard a missionary talk about how she would share her faith and she said that she would take the opportunity when she had it to share about her story 
And then she would say to the person, now, now that you know my faith story, I'd love to hear a little bit about yours. And she would ask a simple question like, did you grow up in a family of faith? As I heard her, I was impressed at how simple it seemed. And then when I started to use it and try it in conversations, I was amazed at how effective it was. Every person that I have asked has been willing to share some part of their story with me. And when they do, it gives me an insight into how I should share my story, what I should share from God in regards to his story. I'm a visual person, so let me show you what it is that I mean. Youth for Christ, a ministry that's been thriving since 1944, when the Reverend Billy Graham, by the way, was their only full-time staff member, came up with a model that they call the three-story model. It's all about relationship, our relationship with God and our relationship with people. And they say that it's important when you're sharing your faith to yes, share your story, but also to share God's story, but then also to hear their story. And the beauty comes in the overlap. The beauty comes in the place where their story, God's story, and your story comes together. As I have learned more about my story, as I have delved into God's story, and I've asked questions of their story, I'm amazed at how much easier it is to share my faith. I wish that I could go back to 1989. <laughs> and I wish I could tell that oh-so-qualified cashier at the county market that her story was much more than just going overboard on caffeine. I would challenge her to take the time to articulate the big and personal answers that she knew deep in her soul. And who knows, the life of the guy from the produce section might have been changed for eternity. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for the gift of the big answer. Thank you, God, for what you did to write our relationship with you by sending your son, Jesus. And thank you for the way that you allow it to personally impact each of us and our stories. God, I pray that you would give us a burden in this moment for those around us who do not yet know your story or how their story is connected to yours. And I pray, God, that just like we saw the transformation in Peter from when he said, I don't know the man, to this is the man. God, would you change our hearts? Would you change our spirit? Would you change our attitude toward the sharing of our faith? And we'll thank you in advance, God, for what you will do in and around and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.